Dan. Riley. Here we are. And this is episode nine, which means next week is episode 10, which means we are being able to celebrate our 10th anniversary. Yes, it's very exciting. I really didn't think we'd get past episode three. Neither did I. <gasps> What's that voice? Oh, my God. It's me. I'm back. Welcome back, Bonnie. Thank you. I missed you guys so much. So, Bonnie, we had some theories on where you were uh, for the last couple of weeks. Would you like to share with the good listener what you were actually doing? I was actually, well, there, you know, it's been a while. Uh, I spent some time in Argentina hunting Nazis. Oh, and yeah. uh, I also um, joined a jazz combo and uh, to, to, you know, to play in that. I play the bass and I went to uh, Toronto and picked up a brand new upright bass. So that's that's where I was. The oh. bass part we know is true because I saw a picture of it on social media. Well, mm. I can't exactly publish pictures of me hunting Nazis in Argentina now, can I? Well, you don't want the Nazis to know what you look like. Exactly. I have to keep uh, incognito. So yeah. there are no pictures. Yeah. Isn't there a show on the History Channel or Discovery Channel where that's exactly what they're doing? Are they really? Oh, I know. Wait, it's that they're searching to see if uh, Hitler ended up in Argentina after the war. And every episode, they get really close to finally finding that definitive proof, yet they never do. Of course. It's like that Oak Island show. I don't know if that airs in the United States. I saw it. It's the worst show. Right. And every episode, they find like, oh, here's a brass fitting from a ship. They must be here. And they've never found this massive uh, cache of, of treasure that is apparently there. That just, I don't, anyway. I watched that show and I was good for about 25 minutes. And then I'm like, I'm over this. But there's a show you two have to watch. A lot of other podcasters mention TV shows, so I think we can too. Um, a show called Murder Mountain about the mountain mountainous range in Cal- Northern California where they grow pot. And people, there's tons of people who have gone there and disappeared. And people go there because you can make like 150 bucks a day trimming pot, which I didn't know. So we're back together. The three ne'er-do-wells are back together, reunited, and it feels so good. That's a song by Peaches and Herb from the 70s. I know that. I've got it on 45. I knew you did in that little denim box. Yes. Okay. I want to tell you a story, a story, a story. I got to warn my, uh, my list. I got to warn our listeners. This is a dark tale. Uh, I think Dan and I, okay, Dan and I talked and we decided that we would do um, complimentary stories for the ninth and 10th episode. So we are doing complimentary stories. My tale is dark. Dan's is dark as well. So warning folks, there's some pretty graphic description that I'm going to be um, sending your way. So if you're squeamish, You might want to give this one a pass. It's not that bad. It's not like a true crime podcast where it's gore, gore, gore. This is just disturbing imagery. I might mute myself. It's not that bad, Bonnie. I know you. I think you'll be okay. So um, do you want me to tell you the story? Yes, please. Okay. The tale this week is the Yuba County Five. And this is known as one of the most puzzling disappearances in um, North America. Occurred in 1978. This is a baffling one. If you read about it, you'll just get so sucked into this story because it is so puzzling. So I'm going to tell you the story in kind of sequential uh, order, the way it kind of unfolded on the timeline. 
Um, the first thing I want to do is introduce you to our cast of characters. So when I say the Yuba County Five, we're talking about five young men. The first of which is a gentleman named William Sterling. We're going to refer to him as Bill Sterling because everybody did. He was 29 years old. He was a deeply religious young man, and he would often read spiritual texts and distribute them to folks at local mental institutions where he would volunteer his time. He, at an early age, had been diagnosed with learning disabilities. He lived with his parents. He was a skittish young man. He rarely left his house, and he was described as having the mind of a child with all the sweetness and innocence that goes with that. The next person we have is a 24-year-old gentleman named Jack Hewitt. He also lived with his parents. He was the most uh, handicapped of the group of five. He hated being away from home, and he also had been diagnosed with a mild learning disability. And I'm later on going to mention a gentleman named Ted Weir, and he was Ted Weir's best friend. And Weir was the more um, courageous of the two, so he looked out for Jack, and they were inseparable. It's a, quite a lovely friendship that they had. So Ted Weir. He was 32. Despite the age difference, he was Jack's best friend. Like I said, he'd also been diagnosed with learning disabilities. He was known to be extremely friendly and positive, a lovely guy by all accounts. He had been working in a snack bar, uh, but his parents had tried to get him to leave the job because they felt it was too stressful for him. He was described as also having the mind of a child. This anecdote, I know you'll love this one, Dan. Ted would often call Bill, uh, Bill Hewitt, who I mentioned earlier, to share funny stories uh, that he'd read in the paper or weird names that he had come across in the phone book. I just love that. Like, Dan, I could see you calling me and saying, I just saw this weird name in the phone book. And you'd mm -hmm. read it to me and I'd laugh. I, I love that. That's just a friendship thing. He was also extremely likable and social. Mm -hmm. Next, we have a gentleman named Jack Madruga. He was 30 years old. He lived with his parents. He had served in the army in Vietnam, and when he returned, he had been discharged from the army uh, after a medical evaluation. He had been laid off from a factory job. He had undiagnosed learning disabilities, but he was the most high-functioning and competent of them because he had a driver's license. The final gentleman we have here is Gary Mattias. He was 25 years old. He lived with his parents, and he worked at his grandfather's landscaping business. He had also served in the military, but he had been discharged for psychiatric reasons because he had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. He had experienced violent outbursts while he was serving in the Army, and unlike the others, he had no intellectual impediments. He had very bad vision, wore thick, thick glasses, and over the years, he had managed to stabilize his illness through medication. He survived on a military disability pension, so he had a, ste a steady income. Okay. So these five gentlemen, as you can probably surmise from my description, were all intellectually challenged. They were referred to as the boys by their families and loved ones. They were all best friends. They were all considered to be high functioning, and they all participated in a rehabilitation program called Gateway. Now, Gateway uh, was designed to help people with mental challenges succeed and gain independence. And this is how they met through that organization. But what brought them together was a love of basketball. And they played together on a team called the Gateway Gators. So through the Gateway program, they had a team called the Gators. This is shaping up. I'm just going to stop you really quickly here. This is shaping up to be really sad. Because I'm really liking these guys. The guys are awesome. Everybody really liked them. Uh, so 
bounce you on back to 1978. They were going to play in a tournament on Saturday, February the 25th, 1978. And the winners of that tournament would win a trip to Disneyland. And it would also put them on the road to qualifying for the Paralympics. So they were over the moon about this. Over the moon. And a few of the boys, according to their families, already had their basketball uniforms laid out on the bed. Ready for the tournament. They were so excited. So... In order to make it a real event, they had made plans to attend a basketball game on Friday the night before their tournament. And this game was being held at California State University in Chico. I love that name, in Chico, California. Chico, don't be discouraged. The man, he ain't so hard to... It's uh, the theme to Chico and the man. Yeah. Anyway, they're going to uh, Chico. A light snowfall had been forecast, but they determined it wouldn't be an issue. And on the way out the door, Ted Weir explained to his grandmother, who he lived with, that he wouldn't be needing his coat that night because they were just going to get in the car and go to a basketball game and then come straight home. Here we are, February 24th, 1978. They set out in Jack Madruga's Pride and Joy, which is his turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego. And they're going to make the 50-mile journey to Chico. I've seen a picture of the car. It's fucking beautiful. I would love to own it. And this car was his pride and joy. It's what you think, a big, long, you know, 1960s car, big metal beast. So this is like an hour and a half to two-hour trip. Yeah, and the weather was bad. So they were probably going to take it a bit easy. So they're probably looking at about two hours. So they went to the game. And witnesses confirmed seeing them at the basketball game in Chico. A whole bunch of people saw them. After the game was over, they returned to the car at approximately 10 p.m. and began the journey home. On the way, they stopped three blocks away from where the game had been at the, uh, at the gym. And they bought snacks at a place called Bear's Market. A B-E-H-R, Bear's Market, uh, like the guy in Little, uh, Little Women, in Chico. Then they headed south for home just as the snow was beginning to fall. The night passes. On Saturday morning, the men had not returned, and their families began to report them as missing. The family stated that the men were very trustworthy and always followed through with plans. They would never deviate from a set plan. They would never leave their families hanging. So Saturday came and went. Everyone knew something bad had happened because there was no way in hell they would have missed that basketball Mm -hmm. tournament. It was one of the biggest things that had ever happened to any Mm. of them. The next day, the families plead with the authorities to immediately launch a big investigation. The person in charge of that investigation is Yuba Police Lieutenant Lance Ayers. Now, this is important because he had known the boys for years and had actually attended high school with Ted Weir, so he knew him personally. For that reason, he felt very connected to the case, So he made a vow that he would work very diligently to locate the missing boys. Still nothing until the first major clue comes forward. A forest ranger doing his rounds finds a car matching the missing vehicle's description. He finds it parked on the side of a very remote access road in the Plumas National Forest, which is 70 miles east of Chico. Mm. Chico being the last place that they were confirmed as Mm -hmm. being. It was confirmed through license plates to be Jack Madruga's car. 
Now, none of the five, according to their families, were familiar with this particular stretch of road, and they would have absolutely no reason to be there. It was a terrible road. Like I said, it was an access road. It was bumpy. Yeah. It was badly maintained. It was extremely difficult to navigate. Like an old logging road. Exactly. It would be not paved. It'd probably be a potholes and yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, one time I was in uh, Nova Scotia with my friend and it was in the early days of GPS when they were, you know, Garmin units, mm -hmm. you would actually buy at the store. Yeah. And the stupid thing we were nav trying to navigate back from the beach brought us down this horrible logging road that was filled with potholes and water. And we had actually had to turn around and lost like two hours on our journey. Stupid thing. And it was, it was like the beginning of a horror movie. Like I could just see my, my vehicle getting stuck and then some bald guy with weird eyes comes out of the bush and chases me and that's it. Wouldn't that be a way to go though? No. It'd be exciting. No. I've always said, if I'm going to go, I want it to be a bald guy, preferably with weird eyes. Well, here I am. Well, your eyes are slightly crossed. All right. Where were we? Oh, you know what the best way to die, by the way, the way my grandmother died? She died in church. Wow. No, that's not the best way. It is. The priest said, go in the peace of Christ. And she stood up and went. Pews are so uncomfortable. And it's church. It wasn't in a pew. It was in a gym. It was in a gym. So in a plastic chair. Yeah. And she fell down and her teeth fell out. And she died. She had, she had denture. They didn't just fall out. That was a weird image. No, and she died. And of course, it's a Catholic church. So there's doctors everywhere. Why was, why, why was she in a gym and not a church? Um, we were living in Blackburn Hamlet in Ottawa and they didn't have, we didn't have a church then. It was in the basement of the Catholic school in the gym. Oh, interesting. It was horrible. The acoustics were awful. So the priest, no matter what he said, would sound like the booming voice of authority. Well, that's pretty cool. But you know what was really funny? Right behind him, behind the altar were the climbing ropes. <laughs> well, you know what else was good? I liked it. It was, they were very efficient because they would just Jew. They would, they would Jew. No, they wouldn't Jew. They would do general absolution. So the priest would just stand up there and just forgive everybody everything. So if you, if you had committed a murder or some horrible thing, that was the night to go to church. It was general absolution. They, he would just blanket forgive everyone in the room. Ah, come on. That's lazy. So you didn't have to do any Hail Marys or Our Fathers or anything like that. No, it was, but it was efficient. You know why I, you know why I didn't like going to confession as a kid? Because there was that whole sequence of things you had to say, like, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And then he'd say something. And then you had to say something. And I, I would get really nervous. And I'd screw it up. And, and then he would get angry every time because we were forced to go at school. And, and now the other part to it, too, is I always was scrambling to figure something out that I could apologize for. Me, too. That wasn't real. No. See, I was, I was Protestant. I didn't have to apologize for anything. Well, and when you're like eight, you don't really have anything that you actually should be apologizing for anyway. Oh, I did. I did. I didn't. So I would make things up like, uh, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. I burnt down my family house or forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. I robbed three banks and shot a teller in the mouth with a shotgun. I'd say things like that. Well, I, I'm speechless. And I always got absolved. I had to do like two Hail Marys. I actually did one bad thing when I was very young. I stole a toy truck from a friend of mine. I really coveted. And it was the only bad thing I ever did when I was a little kid. And I was so freaked out. And you know what I did? I was so freaked out by it 
that I buried it in a hole. That's two sins. You coveted mm-hmm. and you yeah, stole. I covet all. I covet constantly though. So I, that's that sin travels with me. It's like a, a traveling companion. That's why I have a two-seater car so that my covetous nature can sit next to me. And you used to always have that old leather backpack with studs in it and you called it covet. Do you remember? This is my little coveting backpack. And I used to kiss it. <laughs> This is so weird. Oh, this is weirder than the story that you're telling. All right. So this is weirder. This is weirder than the access road that they ended up on. Okay. Here's what happens next. Back to the grim tale. So like I said, none of the five knew that road. They had no reason to be there. They were, none of them were campers and a few of them actually hated the outdoors. Right, and so they're not camping here. They literally just went to Chico to see a basketball game. A couple of them had been fishing and camping. None of them were into it. It wasn't a hobby with them. They had never been to this particular area in the Plumas National Forest. There was no reason for them to be there. But the, but the plan was just to go to the basketball game and come back. Yes. And they always followed through with their commitments. If they said to their families, because I mean, they're intellectually challenged. So it was important for them to make commitments to their families and follow through with them because their families would worry. Right. And they hadn't packed or anything like that anyway. Nothing. They had nothing. They had just they had like no, some of them were wearing sneakers. It was February and a, snow, yeah. a snowstorm was happening. And also there was nothing of note at that location. There was nothing scenic to see. There was no reason to be there. It was an access road. Okay. So the car, it's on the side of the road. It is unlocked. One of the windows is down, even though it had been a really aggressive snowstorm. The wrappers from the snacks that they had bought at Bears Market in Chico, which I mentioned earlier, were littered throughout the car. So there was, a, I think, a Pepsi bottle, a couple of, you know, whatever, chocolate bar wrappers. The car was properly parked on the side of the road. It wasn't, you know, it didn't look like, you know, when you see a car in a, in a crime drama where it's pulled over and all the doors are open and they've, they've obviously exited in a hurry. It was properly parked with care. So it looked like they, you know, they, they weren't in any danger at that time. The keys to the car were not there. When officers started the car, they found it to be in perfect working condition. So it still had a quarter tank of gas, which was plenty to get them home. So that ruled out engine trouble or loss of fuel. From all intents, for all intents and purposes, it looked like they had just left the car and ventured out into the freezing, cold, snowstormy night. But why? So the search began in earnest at that site. But unfortunately, we're talking February, so the weather and increasing volumes of snow made it almost impossible for authorities to conduct an effective search. And finally, they were forced to stop it. They had no choice but to wait until spring when the weather finally approved. Imagine being the families. And there's just nothing you can do. The weather is so bad in those mountains, you've got to wait till spring. So the clock is ticking and they just, they're unable to search. Yeah. Lieutenant Ayers was obsessed with finding the boys and he kept working on the case. He was determined to locate them and it became very personal for him. He and the families of the missing boys worked on pursuing every possible lead and they even offered rewards for information leading to them finding the boys. So, of course, whenever rewards are offered, the phone starts to ring it. And the police began receiving all kinds of leads and, you know, witnesses claiming possible sightings. Most of these, the majority, were valueless. However, one was of particular interest. And that is the story I'm going to tell you now. It's a tale buried within a tale. Oh. Yes. A 55-year-old man named Joseph Shones seized the report about the missing men 
on the television and he is shocked. He is rooted to his chair. He immediately picks up the phone, contacts the authorities and tells them the following story. On February 24th, the night of their disappearance, he was heading up to check the skiing conditions at his lodge. To get to his lodge, he had to use the same access road on which the car was found. Again, this is the same night the boys disappeared. His Volkswagen Beetle becomes stuck in the snow because, like I said, it was a snowstorm and beetles aren't great for navigating in bad conditions. As he tries to free the car by pushing it, he feels a tightness in his chest. He realizes he's having a heart attack. He gets back into his car and decides he's going to try to survive the night because the car can't move. He's praying someone's going to come along and save him. He falls into a light slumber. Around 2 a.m., he hears a strange whistling noise. Out of the windows of the beetle, he sees a dim light approaching. It grows in intensity, and he can see that it's car headlights. So he's completely overjoyed. He's going to be saved. Everything is going to be fine. But then the lights stop moving. He sees six people get out of a vehicle. He can't tell what the vehicle looks like because the lights are shining. But he can tell that the car is turquoise and white. One of the figures is a woman who appears to be holding a baby. They are standing about 100 feet away from him. He opens the window and screams for help. The men and the woman immediately rush back into the car and the car headlights abruptly go out. He's sitting in his car going, what the hell? Why are they ignoring me? So once again, he can't, doesn't really want to move because he's scared for his health. And when you say six people, by the way, is that including the baby or there's five, six, six adults and a baby? Six adults and a baby. Wow. Yeah, six adults. And the other five are male, tall males. So he falls into a light slumber again because he's had a heart attack. Later that night, he again hears strange whistling noises and he spots a flashlight bobbing outside in the darkness. He rolls down the window and screams for help again. The flashlight goes out. Eventually, his gas runs out and the engine on the vehicle stops. So he realizes at that point that if he stays in the car, he's going to die of exposure. He goes outside and it's pitch black. There's no light whatsoever, darkness. You, I mean, you've been out in the woods in the dark, in, the, in, the, in a rural setting. I mean, it's just pitch black. Whoever had been outside his car was gone. The snow has already eradicated all trace of footsteps. So Joseph does the only thing he can do. He walks eight miles through the snow to find help. On the way, about a half a mile from his car, he passes the abandoned Montego on the side of the road. He eventually makes it to safety. He's brought to the hospital and he survives. So many believe he was the last person to see the missing boys alive. But who was that sixth figure. And and you mentioned that they five males were all tall. I'm assuming big that guys. still are. Yeah, some of them are 200 pounds and not fat. Right, so they're big guys. Big guys, yeah, big men. So a second witness comes forward and states that she also saw the boys. She works as a clerk at Mary's Country Store in Brownsville, which is about 30 miles southeast of where they find the Montego. She says she saw five men fitting the description at approximately 2 p.m. on February 25th, the day after they went missing. She claims that two guys who match Jack and Bill's description were using a phone in the store. 
The others, the other three guys, were waiting in a red pickup truck in the parking lot. The story is confirmed by her boss, who was also there, and so it was determined that she was a credible witness. However, the family state that Jack, who she says she saw on the phone, had an intense aversion to speaking on the phone. And Jack's brother, who lived with him as well, took most of Jack's phone calls at home and made calls on his behalf. He hated the phone that much. So that discredits her testimony quite a bit. I mean, Jack had a profound hatred of the phone. Three weeks after the disappearance, a woman named Debbie Lynn Reese, she's a resident of Yuba County, receives a phone call. A very, very deep man's voice says to her, I know where the missing five men are. And then he hangs up. Okay, she's deeply unsettled. The next day, she receives yet another call. The same voice says, I need help because I really hurt those guys bad. Sorry, who's receiving these calls? Debbie. Debbie Lynn Reed. And who's Debbie? You don't know her, Dan. She lives in Yuba County. Okay. No, I, I'm pretty sure I met her. Didn't you date her in high school? Yes. For We had a school dance. It, we started dating at the beginning of the dance. Uh, it was a Halloween dance. I was dressed as Spider-Man. Oh, I remember the story. And you broke up with her because of hygiene issues. Terrible hygiene. And not hers, mine. And I'm very embarrassed. So you just you just scuttled this really deep moment I was having. I, I scuttled it. I scuttled. I just have to stop it because this is eerie and weird. So she's not connected yet that we can see to these boys. This is not a friend or a mother, but someone's calling her to tell her this. Yeah, just out of the blue. So he says, I need help because I really hurt those guys bad. Who'd you hurt? Replied Debbie. And the guy replies, don't play dumb with me. And he hangs the phone up abruptly. The next day she receives the third and final phone call. And the voice is there again, and it says, Those five guys are all dead. They're all dead, replies Debbie. They're all dead. And then he hangs up. He never calls her again. Hmm. That's another piece of evidence. Yeah, that's weird. All right, we're going to jump forward in time to late spring of 1978. Saturday, June 4th, 1978, a group of weekend bikers, not cyclists, but motorcycle people, are out riding their motorcycles in the Plumas National Forest. They come across a trailer park in the forest. It consisted of one large trailer surrounded by four smaller ones. It's a U.S. Forestry Service station, and it's there to be used by the Forestry Service during fire spotting or search and rescue operations. It was only used if and when needed. It is not a manned station. It's stocked with provisions. So there's a tank with propane in it as well as uh, food, uh, mostly dehydrated freeze-dried food. So the motorcyclists decide to take a break and explore the camp. As soon as they get off their bikes, they notice there's a sickly sweet odor in the air. A few of the group think perhaps an animal must have died nearby and it's probably decomposing in the heat. They're about to leave when they notice that one of the windows in the big trailer, the sort of central trailer, has been broken. So they decide that they're going to investigate. When they open the door, the smell becomes overwhelming. They decide to press forward. There's not much inside the main room, only a few cupboards and tables. However, at the rear of the structure, lying on a bunk bed, they find a body wrapped in eight layers of sheets and blankets with the feet exposed. Hmm. On a bedside table, they find a ring with the name Ted engraved on it. They also find a wallet 
and a gold watch. They open the wallet and discover that the body is Ted Weir. He's barefoot. His shoes are gone. His feet are exposed. They're frostbitten and deeply infected. Five of his toes are missing. They've fallen off. His pants are rolled up to the knee. Later, using weight loss and hair growth analysis, experts determined that Ted had been alive for up to 13 weeks after his disappearance before his eventual demise. Oh. It was determined that he had died of exposure and pulmonary edema. I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. The trailer park they found was about 20 miles uphill from where the car had been found abandoned. The snow drifts between the car and the trailer park at that time of year would have been up to six feet deep. Mm -hmm. So somehow Ted had made it that far. Almost impossible when you think of it. Uh, Pulmonary edema. what, What is that, Bonnie? Pulmonary edema is a condition caused by excess fluid in the lungs. This fluid collects in the numerous air sacs in the lungs, making it difficult to breathe. In most cases, heart problems cause pulmonary edema. So, like I said, the trailer was stocked with enough supplies so that Ted could easily have survived until help came. Yet they were untouched. I want to give a footnote here. There were actually enough supplies for all five of the disappeared men to have lived and existed for an entire year. Oh, my gosh. It was that well stocked. There was also thick protective winter clothing in abundance. It also was hanging there untouched. There were also matches and tons of books and magazines, which had, which could have been used to start a fire. However, no attempt to start a fire had been made. There was also a full tank of propane that could have easily been switched on to warm the trailer. They noticed that the shed at the rear of the trailer had been broken into, which seemed to indicate that Ted had not been alone in the trailer. 30, uh, 31 sea ration cans, sea rations are a military thing, in the yep. shed were empty. So they had been opened with a P-38 can opener. P-38 can opener is military issue. So Gary Matthias and Jack Madruga would have known how to use that particular can opener because they had served in the military. Also, there's no way that Ted could have covered himself the way he was covered. Right. He was tucked in with eight layers of bedding. Right. And given the condition of his feet, there's no way he could have moved around. Someone was there to help him. So if the others were there, why on earth did he starve? Investigators find Gary's sneakers in the shed, but there's no sign of Gary. I should also note that the gold watch that was found next to Ted's body didn't belong to him or any of the other missing men. Oh, okay. The next day, Plumas County Police find the skeletal remains of Jack Madruga 11 miles from the trailer, just off a road leading back in the direction of the car. Madruga's car keys are still in his pants pocket, and they guess that he probably had ventured out to try to get help, but had failed. Madruga had died of hypothermia and exposure, and his body had been ravaged posthumously by wildlife. So they had to gather him up. Mm -hmm. On the other side of that road, police find several more bones. An analysis identifies those bones as belonging to Bill Sterling. Several articles of clothing are also found at that site to confirm his identity. He has also been ravaged posthumously by animals to a bigger degree than Madruga. And his remains are scattered over a 50-foot radius. They can't determine the cause of death for Bill because all that really remains of him are a few bones and clothing. 
So the search amps up now because they found three bodies. Against the advice of the authorities, Jack Hewitt's father insists on being part of the search team, which is quite large now. He says he needs to know what happened to his boy. That's all he wants. He wants answers. Two days after discovering the bodies of Sterling and Madruga, Jack Hewitt Sr. sees something near the trailer. It's a jacket lying in the snow. He recognizes that jacket. He runs to pick it up. And when he does, his son's spine falls out of the jacket. Oh, my God. It's all that's in the jacket is his spine. His son's, so Jack Hewitt's bones are also scattered in a wide radius. His skull is found nearby the next day. And that's how they determine that that's his body. Oh, my God. The search continues. However, no remains of Gary Mattias are ever found. And no information on his whereabouts has ever been received. A little bit of interest here. In 1975, Gary Mattias had quit school and moved to Oregon to live with his grandmother. Weeks later, he suddenly appears dirty and bedraggled at his parents' door. He had left his grandmother's house and traveled on foot for over 540 miles from Portland, Oregon to Marysville, California. Gary stated that he had walked the whole way and had stolen milk and eaten dog food to survive. So this just puts a little bit of perspective on what Gary is like. The questions, did Gary die in some remote forest location during the freezing conditions like the majority of the party? Here's another interesting fact. Gary's sneakers, as I mentioned before, had been found in the abandoned camp. Yeah. And Ted Weir's leather shoes were never found. So people speculate that he swapped them out for Ted Weir's much larger and more sturdy leather shoes. Also, another question that people have raised, and I'm sure you're thinking it in your heads right now, did he kill his friends? Mm-hmm. Unexplained Mysteries wanted to do an episode based on this story. I mean, it's right up their alley. So they contacted the families, and all of the families agreed to do the story except Gary's. Why? The other families have stated that they found this to be incredibly suspicious. To this very day, Gary Mattias's family refuses to comment on the mystery. Many of the families of the other four believe Gary was involved. And they say that Gary was a different sort of person from the other four, four boys who were always together. Right. Gary wasn't always with them. The other four were inseparable friends for life. Gary was more of an outsider. Mm-hmm. The coach of the basketball team, the Gators, the Gateway Gators that I mentioned earlier, said he always felt that Gary could flip out at any time. He was very tightly wound. Gary had also told a close friend over and over again that he had a dream where he and several others would simply disappear. Gary also had friends who lived about 20 kilometers away from Chico. And some people speculated that maybe Gary tried to make the others go and visit those friends and maybe they got lost because Gary was often the instigator of things like that. Mm -hmm. But there was no proof, nothing to indicate that that was indeed the case. So here we have the big burning questions. Why did they abandon the car, which was in perfect working order and not stuck in the snow? Mm -hmm. Why did they venture onto that mountain trail at all when they were known to be very reliable and never deviate from plans and commitments? And why had they walked 20 miles away from the car into the wilderness during a blizzard? And finally, why didn't they take advantage of the food and heat that was available at the trailer park that they found? Here's the big theories. 
Theory number one, Gary had friends, like I said, in nearby Forbesville. Maybe they wanted to visit those friends and had become lost. We already talked about that. Theory number two, maybe they had simply become lost, abandoned the car, and eventually found the trailer camp and just couldn't cope with it. But two of those people had been former servicemen. So they should have had the abilities. They should have had the raw materials they needed to survive. They should have had enough knowledge. Perhaps Madruga and Sterling left the camp to try to find help, leaving Matthias uh, behind to assist Weir. A quarter mile west of the trailer, police had found three blankets and a rusted flashlight. So speculation is that maybe Matthias had tried to set out on his own after his friends had left the camp and didn't return. And that would explain three blankets, right? One for him and uh, one for each of his missing friends. And so perhaps Gary is out there. He just went out to find them and never did because a flashlight and three blankets sounds like he was looking for the people. Okay, theory number three. Uh, some people speculate that they had been pursued. But like I said, these were five big, capable men who could handle themselves. Theory number four. Perhaps they were trying to hide from something, but from what or whom? Mm-hmm. And theory number five. Here's a good one. Witnesses claimed that the five had been confronted by men in the parking lot at California State University in Chico, where the game had taken place. In 2017, a woman claiming to be Hewitt's sister said that the men had witnessed an altercation between a woman and a group of men during the basketball game. The five had gone to the woman's aid. The angry men pursued the group into the parking lot after the game. They caught up with them and Gary Matthias was thrown off a bridge and died. His friends panicked and fled and were pursued and ultimately ended up on the mountain trail. However, this theory does not match with the fact that the boys stopped to buy snacks. Mm. So that kind of throws that theory out to the wind because mm-hmm. if they were pursued, they wouldn't go, like, oh my God, we're going to die. But wait, we need snacks. The snack part, see, I actually wanted to ask what you thought about that because that's the testimony from that the girl who worked there who said she saw Jack on the phone, right? No, no. They were confirmed that they stopped at a corner store, Bears. Right. A convenience store in Chico to buy snacks after the game for the drive home. Oh, okay. 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 The snack wrappers were found in the car. The other one was a, a, a store that was a, a distance was away. A was like, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And they said that they were in a red pickup truck. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's never been confirmed. Okay. That's my story. That is all I have. That's really sad. I, that breaks my heart to hear that. I, I, so here's the things that stick out to me. I think the strangest and most compelling is that little side story you told about the, um, the gentleman who was having the heart attack. It's possible he was delusional, but it does. I mean, why would he be having, uh, you know, visions of, he had no idea that those boys were there unless he came up with that story afterwards. The woman with the baby, that is really weird. The fact that they cut out the lights when, He's calling for help. The fact that then they're, they're searching for something with a flashlight. Joseph Shones, who was the guy in the car in the Beetle having the uh, heart attack, he was determined to be a very credible witness. He had nothing to gain from telling tales. And he insists that he saw a woman holding what appeared to be an infant. So super strange. Here's the other thing is that how, how on earth did they find that camp? Because that to me seems like if, you know, it's cold nighttime snowstorm that's like finding a needle in a haystack how did they know to go up the mountain to that camper amen i i just think that that 
that's really strange. I also wonder then if they ever actually made it to that site alive. If is it possible that it was post mortem that no. they ended up there? So he what he. He was he was alive for up to thirteen weeks. Ah, that's right, thirteen weeks. Yeah. And like, why you you know why would they go that far to get they got to the camp or say they just were wandering around randomly? Why didn't they use the food or turn on the propane and heat it up? Like it just doesn't make any sense, especially when there was a like I can understand one person. You get confused, you get dazed, you're starving, you're out of it. You crawl into the camper and you you die but this guy was wrapped up and apparently alive for 13 weeks and and with other people why wouldn't you all just say hey let's let's warm up have some food figure out where we are and they said that there were boxes of matches because when you when one of the Mm -hmm. phenomena that can occur with hypothermia is that you can become confused and do strange things that doesn't explain like the fact that he survived as long as he did he didn't have hypothermia then no he had frostbitten feet I mean, he may have, but then he re- he would have recovered. Otherwise, he would have died. So they're assuming there, um, maybe you didn't get that, but they're assuming that his feet were frostbitten on the journey to the trailer. Yeah, no, I did get that. I'm just saying that he didn't die of hypothermia, or at least the initial hypothermia, because he wouldn't have lived that long. Exactly. Right? So someone either kept him alive or he, but that just doesn't make sense. Why did they go there? Like these Guys never deviated from commitments. They were trained to always be where you say you're going to be, arrive on time. They were, that had been, you know, drummed into their consciousness. I think the compass needle keeps keeps pointing to Gary Matthias. Did you say Gary had friends that lived sort of close to that area or he knew people? Yeah, Forbesville. I think it was about 20 miles away from Chico. You don't want to lay blame on someone who quite possibly died with his friends and just has never been found. But it is curious that this guy who has military training, who has friends in the air, perhaps he knew about that camp. But you don't want to. It's so terrible to lay blame. Well, but there's something that has to be mentioned here, and I'm not casting aspersions on any kind of mental illness, but it's paranoid schizophrenia, and that's a bad one. It can be, yeah. He treated yep. it effectively with medication, mm-hmm. but we just don't know. what If he had gone off of the medications, maybe he was suffering from delusions. Um, he might have had sure. a psychotic episode. I don't know enough about paranoid schizophrenia to venture any deeper into this, but that's got to be part of the conversation. In my work, I have worked with folks with paranoid schizophrenia, early onset paranoid schizophrenia, for the most part, very peaceful, lovely, you know, people that have obstacles that they need to overcome. I have had a client who had a, I've witnessed a psychotic episode that was very scary and pretty traumatic for a lot of the people that were involved. So perhaps that, I mean, you, again, you, you want to be careful jumping to that conclusion and the vast majority of people with paranoid schizophrenia are not violent and don't act out in a violent way. And that's it. I don't want to I don't want to paint a, a picture of a mental illness that is very easily treatable and, and you can easily maintain. Um, but I mean, again, I just think it has to be part of the conversation. I also find it interesting. There's the other two pieces, the phone call from the guy with the deep voice to that random person. And yeah. the woman who, the girl who lied about the phone call and the red, seeing the red pickup truck, or was she lying? Did she mix up the identity? Is that red pickup truck 
who was pursuing? Did they get kidnapped? You know, then I start to think like I, I hear about, um, is it Bill that was, uh, his body was all in parts? Bill Sterling. Bill Sterling, yeah. And then Madruga as well. But they knew that it was him because his car keys and stuff were in his pocket. Like, then you wonder, was it a satanic ritual or was it like deliverance? And they there were some creepy locals that got a hold of these guys and took advantage of them. Well, the I can tell you about the red pickup truck. A lot of people just think that they're mistaken, that there was just five guys in a pickup truck. It's rural. Five guys in a pickup truck, I'm sure, is not an unusual thing. Um, so five, the five guys in a, in a pickup truck stopped and two of them got out to make a phone call. If yeah. you take away those guys' names from it, it doesn't seem like that unusual in occurrence. Here's the other thing too, I'd say in Gary's defense, where is he now? Like we, he would have surfaced, right? Yeah. If he survived, if he had murdered them. He didn't murder them. There's no evidence of murder. Right. So if, but if he had been involved somehow in luring them out there, doing something odd or creepy, taking apart Bill's body, I think that he would have eventually been discovered. He was also, yes, he was in the military, but he wasn't an expert survivalist who's been living in a cabin all by himself somewhere, you know, on a mountaintop. Mm-hmm. He would have surfaced. Exactly. I would argue that he probably wandered off as well and died in those woods. They just never found the body. And some of the bones were found near a stream. There's waterways in those mountains. And if remains are in a stream, they tend to decompose much quicker. And also they're not searching stream, the beds of, of streams for bones. So the bones could be there. He could, his remains could be somewhere in the water. Is it possible then that they, geez, I don't know. See, I, I'm thinking in my head, I've f- figured out that they, they somehow make it up there. They're, they're suffering from hypothermia. They open up a couple of those, those can, tin cans, but then why did they go there in the first place? That's the big one. That's the big question is why there in the first place. There is so much speculation about this, so much written about it. Some people think that Gary Mattias had this idea that they should get away and live alone in the forest because there was some kind of, you know, he, he was perceiving some kind of threat. So he knew about this camp or had found this camp and wanted to bring them up there and then it had gone really bad. But there's nothing. I mean, there's no evidence of any of it. It's pre-internet. So there's nothing we can trace online about it. It's 1978, you know? Yeah. And if he had convinced them of that sort of plan, you would also have to think that there would be some modicum of preparation, especially on Gary's, like, if it, like, wearing your winter coat, wearing boots as opposed to running shoes. Bill Sterling rarely left the house, um, was very much like a child. Very unlikely that he would do that. Also, Hewitt. Hewitt was also a very tentative human being. Unlikely that those two would have gone along with anything. They would have been terrified. They would have put up a fight. I think this story is just that much more upsetting and disturbing because they were uh, intellectually challenged. They're described as childlike and such nice guys. And it just, you know, you just. absolutely. So this is a famous story. It's a big one. If you look up Yuba County 5, it's there's thousands of things written about it. And mm-hmm. to this day, nobody knows what happened. And like mm-hmm. I said, Gary, Gary Matthias has never been found. Very sad. Very, mm-hmm. very sad. I can tell you were kind of riveted by that one because you usually interrupt me during the course of the story and you didn't say a word. Well, it, there, there's a lot of pieces to sift through. And like I kept writing things down as you were writing. And normally I actually tune you out in these shows. This, But there were so many p- moving pieces to your story. So I felt 
I needed to really pay attention. And you think it's one of those great stories where you think you've got the answer and then you realize, no, you don't. And it is a very sad story. And you're not wrong. You know, the nature of these men makes you feel for them. Yeah. And their families. And that moment, that moment where Hewitt's father picks that coat up and the spine falls out. Oh, child, that one. Oh, that's the worst. And I can't, I, I putting myself in that father's shoes. Yeah. I can't imagine the devastation that you would feel seeing something like that. By the way, if you're interested, I was interested. You can go online. There's, let's post this. We'll post some pictures of the trailer and the Montego and a bunch of stuff. Cause there's lots of footage of what the trailer park looked like. There's no, it's not graphic. They're the bodies aren't, aren't there. It just shows you what the trailer looked like, what, where the location was, what the car looked like, things like that. And pictures of the guys, if you want to see them. Yeah, that's good. And we will always post this stuff on Facebook and Twitter. The Facebook one will, of course, you know, it'll stay on our, on our page. So you can see some of the things that we're talking about. Uh, in past episodes, we've posted, for example, pictures from the asylum or the Van Meter Visitor, you know, Shackleton's Journey, Betty and Barney, Rubble. It's kind of fun to be able to see some of those pictures. So we'll always, you know, post some of the things that we we found in our research there. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, if you're interested in seeing that and you don't want to go to the trouble of, you know, sorting through the minefield that is Google, you can pay a visit to uh, one of those two sites. And again, thank you for reaching out to us. A number of you have reached out to us and we love you for it. So, um, Dan, I think we've reached the end of our journey. I think so. I'm just hoping that our journey isn't ending in a trailer park. Me too. So next week will be our 10th episode. Yeehaw, I'm going to wear a festive hat. I am going to wear a very, very uh, festive pair of lederhosen. Okay, let's go. We got to go. It's an hour. We Longest episode ever. Super dupes. Bye, everybody. Love you. Arrivederci. Good night. So long and farewell.